0: All right. I am here with one of the best researchers around today, Mr. James Corbett of the Corbett report. How are you doing, sir? I'm uh, only hoping I can live up to that introduction, but other than that, I'm pretty good. Yeah, oh, man. Uh, you do some of you do some great work between you and Richard Grove. I can't keep up. Fair enough. And his <laughs> bookshelf is, uh, quite a bit bigger than mine. So
1: Put a lot of research behind him. Yeah.
0: I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you, uh, when when I saw the gas prices going up as we were chatting about beforehand, I wanted to kind of get you on because you had the documentaries "How Big Oil Conquered the World" and "Why Big Oil Conquered the World," which were great. And I'm going to put those in the links in the show links uh, because those are great documentaries. I started rewatching them the other night just because I was like, "Oh, I gotta, I gotta touch up on this." And uh, I've been I've been on this ESG kick. And then I see gas prices going up and everybody's pointing the face like that Spider-Man meme where everybody, all the Spider-Man's are pointing the finger at each other. And I was like, no, this doesn't seem right to me. So I just started first thing I did was like, well, who's on the board of directors of shell who's on the board of directors of BP, what are these people saying And one of the quotes that sticks out in my head was the, um, the CEO of BP was giving a speech and he said, fortunately he said something along, like, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, because I don't have it right in front of me, but he was saying something about fortunately the price has gone up so that we can stop being an energy producer. And a, what did, how did he say it? Not an energy distributor. It was something else. It was like a, di- a diverse diversity. Like it, it was some diversity quote. And I was like, what is he talking about? You know? So I wanted to get you on to talk about this because I was like, who would know better than the man who made the documentaries? Yeah, it's, uh, quite a
1: crazy situation we're living through right now. And in some ways, perfectly predictable. Uh, I think this is part of the crisis that is leading towards the creation of the new economy that I was talking about in why big oil. So people might remember in my how big oil conquered the world documentary, it sort of ends with that question of, well, okay, but here we are in the 21st century and It looks like the all the same like literal Rockefeller and Rothschilds and all these people who were the kings of the the oil industry as it developed and was monopolized are now into this uh, divestment and uh, trying to get get rid of all their oil holdings and are now all on board with the green agenda. What's going on? So why big oil conquered the world tries to pick up the story and explain how this connects and what what the bigger game is going on here. And I think it's 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 essentially if you want it boiled down to a couple sentences we are being prepared for the neo feudal society where of course energy has always been one of the defining constraints on human development and no different today so what better way to constrain the human population than to literally say, okay, we can't we can't use this this type of dirty, bad energy anymore. We can only use this wind turbine energy that produces one one millionth of what we actually need. So we're going to have to tighten our belt a little bit. But how do you structure and restructure the entire global economy that has been structured around the, the energy systems that we've been using, um, not without crisis? And so we're going to see crisis after crisis, whether that be COVID scandemic crisis, or whether that be war crisis, or and ultimately it will be an economic crisis. And the answer to it has already been provided to us and already laid out in documents and white papers and what have you. We are moving to this post-carbon economy that's going to look like this. And ultimately, I think the real, real game plan here is in line with what the technocracy, Inc. people were proposing back in the 1930s, which is an economy that is structured around energy credits that are allocated to you as a type of stipend, a universal basic income, as it were, on a monthly basis or whatever they decide, you will get a certain amount of energy credits that you can then spend into the economy and you will buy things for those energy credits. And once you're out, you're out and too bad for you. Um, That is the ultimate vision, I think, of the people who want to literally control the population in every sense of that word, not just in terms of numbers, but in terms of what that population is able to do. And this is how this is the this is how we get there, essentially. And programmable CBDC is perfect for that agenda. That's 1000%. Every piece of this lines up in such a way that it's almost it's almost a marvel to behold if it wasn't so horrifying. But absolutely, digital ID will tie into central bank digital currencies, will tie into your energy allotment credits, UBI, whatever they want to call it, will tie into essentially a social credit score which uh, will be uh, compiled on you. And we've already seen how this starts, what this will look like in not in some, you know, backwards commie China situation, but in in Canada, one of the leading democracies of the Western world. It's like, oh, you you donated money to the wrong political protest movement. We're turning you off. And that was what that looks like in 2022. By the time we get to the end of this, once we get to the 2030 or whatever it is, it will be so much easier. There won't be a freedom convoy to worry about because the self-driving trucks will simply be turned off um, at the central control switch. That is the world that we're moving into right now.
0: Yes. And it's, it's, it's really crazy that one of the stories that caught my attention that I didn't hear a lot of people talking about it, but... It was the lady who liked a post on Facebook and the cops showed up at their house at her house and she, she liked a freedom convoy post and, up in Canada and the Mounties showed up and started questioning her. Like, we want to tell you they, how they were just you're giving supposed information. to protest. Right.
1: Know? No, this is, this is what you're allowed to do at protest. We're just giving you information. We're just informing. you. So you're monitoring my Facebook post for, you know, things that I'm liking. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah we're just giving you information. We're not interfering.
0: <laughs> right. I started when I was, I was, I was digging into ESG and I was, I was trying to figure out like, what, what does this mean? Like, how, how can they do this? And I happened to stumble across this after January 6th. And I remembered that story about bank of America, turning over all the records of people that were shopping in DC the day of January 6th and the feds using that information to go after, uh, people. And I was like, hold on. So As you're purchasing things, the bank is taking records of it and then handing those records over to the feds so the feds can make decisions about whether or not you are capable of being an investor or being, you know, and if you're making the right purchases in the right area, what if you're investing in cryptocurrency? What are they going to do to you then? What if you're investing in, you know, um, Smith and Wesson? What are they going to do to you then? So I started seeing this immediately that I was like, this is bad news and People, you mentioned social credit scores, and people, I think, conflate to a degree ESG and social credit scores. I think there's a difference. Can yeah. you explain a little yeah. bit about that? All right. So, I actually, the, the best way
1: I've heard this articulated is that you can think of ESG as a kind of a social credit score for corporations. And it will function at that level so that investors will be directed away from investing funds in certain corporations. So what we're looking at is a, a system for controlling the corporatocracy that can be modeled or could eventually be directly applied to individual citizens. It, it, I don't think that's the way it's working yet. And that's not the infrastructure that's being set up yet. So let's go back, back, back up a little and set the table. ESG, Environmental, Social and Corporate Governance. Um, standards and this is a metric for measuring how good your corporate social responsibility is that's been uh, there's been iterations of it in different it's been forwarded by different groups over the decades but um the esg term itself was coined in 2005 by the un global compact what's Hmm. the un global compact uh well, let's take it from the bastion of truthiness, Wikipedia. There you go. United Nations Global Compact is a non binding United Nations pact to encourage businesses and firms worldwide to adopt sustainable and socially responsible policies and to report their implementation. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Areas of human rights, labor, environment, anti corruption, da, da, da. Part of the uh, Cities, the Global Compact through the Cities program, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, in 2005, they had a report called the Who Cares Wins Conference. Um, And that report was at least as far as I can tell where this term ESG was coined and first uh, forwarded. Um, It took a while for it to catch on, though. And it's really in the last couple of years that the idea of assigning ESG scores, okay, let's rank, how good is this company doing on our standards for what it needs to do for its environmental responsibility, its social responsibility, its corporate governance. And then coming up with a score in which you can grade and rank different uh, corporations. And if you don't happen to meet a certain threshold, uh, you don't invest in them. Because if you, as an institutional investor, go in and invest in a company with a low ESG score, that's going to lower your ESG score. And then you'll get less funding and people will be less willing to work with you. So it's essentially sort of this, I mean, hey, it's it's a voluntary system. It's non-binding. This isn't a government regulatory system. So it's, and there's nothing ethically wrong with it, right? Um, but obviously it's the way that this is being set up. And, you know, you know me, I'm a crazy conspiracy theorist. So I might look at You know, literal conspiracies, not closed secret conspiracies, open conspiracies that have taken place that have led us along this road. One example that is in the forefront of everyone's mind right now, the World Economic Forum, which Mm -hmm. started as the European Management Forum in the early 1970s, specifically around Klaus Schwab and his revolutionary idea for stakeholder capitalism, transforming our understanding of capitalism and how it should function, where corporations should not be beholden to their shareholders. They should they have a responsibility to their stakeholders, not just the people who literally hold shares in the corporation, but people who are affected by their business, people who live in the area that the business operates, people, whatever, whatever way you can say, I have a stake in what this corporation does. And so that broadens the corporate responsibility of these corporations. And that was one of the key driving themes of Schwab and the European Management Forum slash World Economic Forum from its inception, um, but move ahead to 2014. And there's this fascinating piece from NPR of all places that I, I, again, it's it's an open conspiracy. There's nothing hidden about it, but you can go and read their piece from 2014, World's Richest People Meet Muse on How to Spread the Wealth. And it's literally illustrated, this article is illustrated with a photo of Lynn Forrester de Rothschild uh, Prince Charles and, uh, the, uh, Christine Lagarde, uh, then, uh, of the IMF, um, at this conference that they were holding back in 2014 on inclusive capitalism. So they held this conference in London and there were about 250 people at this event. And these people, these 250 people represented $30 trillion in investable capital. Um, which was estimated that, that at that time as roughly one third of the total investable wealth in the world. We're meeting in this one room in 2014 to talk about this concept of inclusive capitalism. And so you ask, okay, well, they're, they're, they're giving these speeches about, you know, uh, um, what what our responsibility is as people with this overwhelming wealth and blah, 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 right? Um, So what does that mean, though? Like, what does that actually mean, inclusive capitalism? And even this article goes on to admit (laughs) the phrase inclusive capitalism is deliberately broad. People talked about it as valuing long term investment over short term profits. Some mentioned environmental stewardship. Others focused on treating workers well. Christine Lagarde, who runs the International Monetary Fund, said it is a way to rebuild trust in the financial system. And ultimately, of course, again, it it means whatever they want it to mean. It sounds good, though. Inclusive capitalism, you couldn't get more buzzwordy than that. But that's, I think, the framework in which we start to see this headlong rush into the creation of an ESG metric that somehow assigns a number, a score for you on this scale? How much are you in in the club of this in, uh, uh, inclusive capitalism or whatever we're calling it this week? How much can we trust that you're on board with our agenda? And So all of the power really lies in whoever is writing the metric itself. Do you think every single investor in every single company that's going to be looking at uh, investing assets, especially for these big institutional investors, are going to be looking at that ESG score and thinking about how was that score calculated and what went into that? And oh, well, but why did you rank them that way? No, they're just going to be looking at a number and it's going to tell them, okay, green light or no red light. And um, very little else. And so the real question then is the creation of universal ESG accounting standards that essentially the whole world will adopt. Again, no binding treaty or anything. It's just, oh, everyone's doing this. So I guess we'll do it now. And this was specifically talked about in the Harvard Business Review just last month. We need universal ESG accounting standards, where they note that there are this incredible universe of acronyms that are working on this question right now, the CDSB, the Climate Disclosure Standards Board, the GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative, the IIRC, the International Integrated Reporting Council, the SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. And apparently the one that seems to be the front runner right now for the one that could develop some sort of global, truly global uh, ESG rating is the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board. Mm. And I haven't done the deep dive on any, let alone every one of these organizations yet. And that so budding researchers in the crowd, knock, knock, wake up. Here's a very, very good <laughs> place to start some of your research. Um, but you can go into, for example, the CFA Institute, which uh, is the board that, or the group that certifies uh, the CFA chartered, uh, chartered accountant, CFA rating, um, are working on global ESG disclosure standards for investment products. Oh, guess who else is working on a W uh, on an ESG standard, the WEF, the World Economic Forum, their IBC International Business Council has uh, created a measuring stakeholder capitalism, WEF IBC common metrics document, which uh, furthers their measuring stakeholder capitalism document from September 2020, which is trying to form this sort of overall picture not just esg but incorporating esg as well as corporations adherence to the sdgs the sustainable development goals and again coming up with numbers so you can see something of a war developing between different bodies that want to control the standard so that they can say if you do this you get a good mark if you do this you get a bad mark and and they, they get to certify the people who do this this type of metric uh, uh, reporting uh, at any rate it's a let's go back to george carlin it's the big club and you ain't in it. And that's what this is about. They are going to set some sort of global standards for uh, corporate behavior. And the creepiest aspect of this that I've seen in recent weeks that really solidified in my mind, oh, this this is exactly what this is about, was this long interview in Politico uh, with Fiona Hill talking about Russia and Ukraine and what's happening there. And towards the very end, they were talking about this, the response to this needs to be bigger than NATO, bigger than NATO. Well, not militarily bigger than NATO, but in terms of corporations, corporations have a responsibility to not be dealing with Russia right now. And and so the interview was saying, well, how do you do that? I mean, some companies might decide not to. And she brought it back to ESG. This has to be part of ESG. We have to downgrade people who are going to be working with rogue regimes like Russia or something along those lines. Again, this entire global standard is evolving completely out of the realm of any sort of governmental situation. And this is not something that's going to be gaveled down by law, but it's just going to be this standard that the 250 people or so that control one third of the world's investable assets are going to decide, Okay, we'll use this. And now we get to literally dictate what way the world goes. A prime example of that: the 2021 shareholder letter from Larry Fink of BlackRock was all about ESG mm-hmm. and how this is the way forward, and we have to be on board with this. And blah blah blah. Of course, BlackRock, one of the one of the handful of institutional investors that controls however many billions of uh, dollars, trillions of dollars—I I can't remember what it is, ten trillion or whatever it is—in and of itself. Yeah. Um, these are the these are the places at which. The rubber meets the road in terms of the formation of this overall system. So I think of it as a corporate social credit system that, again, can be used as a model for what will ultimately be um, imposed on citizens somewhere down the road.
0: Yeah, I think uh, the way Klaus Schwab had described it is he he said it was it was to go after the investors, right? And so it, you would be able to if they are doing business with the wrong corporation, the bad corporations, the bad investment strategies, then you would cut off their ability to get loans. So his his idea was the investors have the carrot that that makes the corporations act. And so you hear this kind of trope going around right now: go woke, get woke, go broke. And I'm like, no, that's not that's not the way it's happening. That's I I I am so convinced that that was a psyop planted into <laughs> the public discourse. That I'm like, no. Nope. As soon as I hear get woke, go broke, I'm like, you got to watch what this company's doing, because they're yeah, exactly. they're just distracting you now. Yeah,
1: because, again, that's based on the old thinking of shareholder capitalism, where the shareholders would actually be concerned about the bottom line profit of a corporation. But that's not what this is about. The People who are investing in these multinational corporations are not necessarily concerned about the bottom line. They already controlled one third of the investable assets on the planet Earth. They want to use
0: that power to direct those corporations along a certain path. Yes. And they're using a term. I, I heard I think I heard Trudeau use it the first time I ever heard it during the uh freedom convoy. It's reputational risk. McDonald's pulled out of Russia because of a reputational risk. And you're right. starting to hear this a lot. And it's like, oh, I see where this is going. I see what you people are doing. You're if the investors lead the corporations, the corporations have the carrot that lead the, the public. Right? Yeah, because exactly. yeah. they are the ones who are Ex- experts at propaganda. Yes.
1: And unfortunately, the public has already demonstrated in spades over the course of the past century, let alone the past decades, that, yeah, I'm sure they can complain and they might not like it, but they will go along as the corporations start to change because doing otherwise would require genuine work and you would have to I don't know, shop at your local mom and pop store and buy off brand stuff. And uh, no, I want to go to Walmart and buy whatever, you know, Nike and whatever else it is. And that, that is the road towards corporate serfdom essentially.
0: Well, and, and I know, I know Glenn Beck has been focused on, on the great reset a lot here the last year. And he wrote that book. I read it. It was a decent book. It's, it's actually pretty good for people that don't, that aren't like versed on it, haven't been researching it, haven't been reading it. It's very good. I for, have not read it, but I should. It's it's good. It's, it's not a bad book. It's very good for normies to get introduced to these ideas. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> but, um, he, uh, he, he, one of the things that he's been doing is he's been saying, well, you got to go local. You got to go local. You got to go local. And what this tells me that, that Glenn Beck has not read and he's not, been indoctrinated into is Parag Khanna because Parag Khanna wrote, uh, I, I, found out about this article, this essay that Parag Khanna wrote through, um, Patrick Wood's book, the long road to the right. New World order. Right. Yes. Yes. So pa- Parag Khanna wrote a book called, um, what do you call it? devolution through decentralization? That's what it's called and it's on his website. I've read it several times. Any time I, I meet somebody or that says they're gonna run for office, I like, I send it to him. I'm like, here, you gotta read this. Because what they're talking about is like, let the people have their social structures locally. Let them, if they want to decentralize, if they want to pull away from kind of the woke social justice kind of idea, let them pull back. Because we don't need to control the society If we control the corporations, if we control the companies and the politicians in their local regions, that they can have whatever culture they want. So this is far beyond anything that you and I have had time to think about. These people are billionaires. They can pay people to think about every scenario that you and I could think of to fight back.
1: Exactly right. No, I think. Again, this gives, once again, the lie to the idea that this is a democracy and you are the government and you decide, no, of course not. This is a a, I mean, it's not simply a corporatocracy, but that's at least one way that power is wielded in our society. And so, yes, it doesn't matter which flavor of cola you're buying. Is it Pepsi or Coke or or maybe one of the other brands? It doesn't matter. It's literally the same thing um, in in the political context. So uh, I agree with that. I, I really, yeah. Now that you mention it, I do, I do remember that. But it's been a few years since I read Patrick Wood's book, so I'll have to refresh myself with that. And I didn't actually go back to the source with the Khanna, um book article that you're talking about. But I would say it, it's not so, so decentralization in and of itself is not is not itself the solution, mm. but conscious, consciously done for conscious reasons. That's why I think the the conscious intention of the people is perhaps the most important part of this. If people don't know why, like why why bother to shop at a mom and pop? Why why bother to try to bring things down to a local level? Why why have a local community if there's no reason for it? Then yes, it will simply be scooped up. And one way that that could be done is the Global Cities Network, the Strong Cities Network, whatever it's called, the United Nations and other organizations have been for some time trying to forward agenda 21 slash agenda 2030 through, okay, we're not going to do it through national governments trying to change constitutions and what have you. That's, you know, that's clearly not going to work. Let's do it at the local level. So we'll sort start these local groups. We'll get the mayors and the council members on board, and we'll start to pass these sort of local resolutions, and we'll start to change the structure that way so that it happens a piecemeal, but throughout a coordinated effort. And another way that they try to bring people on board with this is through the Delphi technique, where, come on, guys, we invite your public opinion, your public participation, we'll take all your comments, and then we'll come come up with a plan for what we should do in the local area. And so you've already limited it down to people who actually care what's going on in their local area, which is maybe one in a hundred. And then Then you invite them in and they can have a say and they can, here's your public comment space and time and you can come talk to the council and blah, blah, blah. And then we'll come out with a report based on all of the feedback we've received. And then they come up with a report that they wrote before the whole process took place anyway (laughs) and do what exactly what they were going to do. So this is how you control things. But it seems local and decentralized, but it's not really. Mm. And again, if people don't consciously understand what's happening or why they should do things this way rather than that way, then they can easily be led into the next trap.
0: Yeah. And one thing I can say that at least has been reported that Glenn Beck has approached several states with anti-ESG legislation and several states are working to pass these anti-ESG bills, but the bankers have reacted and they are lobbying and they are going after the state legislatures now. And, and really working hard to infiltrate the state legislatures, which you had to expect. I mean, they're not going to give up on their goals, you know, all willy nilly. They're just not going to let this. I go. haven't
1: looked at, at the anti-ESG bills in, in their particular. So I, I would really like to know how they are written, what they what these <coughs> proposed pieces of legislation actually say. Because as I say, the ESG itself is not a legislative thing. It's not going to take place on the governmental level. It is simply a voluntary standard that will be adopted by companies. Right. Uh, So I'm I'm wondering on a state level, would the state say you can't report ESG or something along those lines? That that, again, seems like a
0: government overreach. Yeah, it's 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 something along the lines from what I understand. And I'd have to go look at the bills. I haven't looked at them in detail, but I've just kind of heard what he's reported that they're writing is and i think new hampshire wrote one so that might be a good one to go look at because you know they are the free state you know so um new hampshire wrote one i know uh idaho had one that the banks really went after the idaho one so it triggered them like majorly but i think what it's saying is that banks cannot require esg like investors to be investing in only right. top tier ESG right. platforms. I think that's kind of what they're getting at. I think they're trying to kind of do like what um what what uh, DeSantis did in Florida with the masking mandates and with the vax mandates saying, "Yeah, you you can't require that the employees get vaccinated. You don't know everything. You're not, you know, hip, we have HIPAA laws and I think that's kind of what they're trying to do with the mm-hmm. banking industry is say, look, there are, there are privacy um, concerns with this and you can't be getting involved in, in people's business in this direct fashion. So I think they're trying to base it off the fourth amendment, if I understand correctly.
1: Yeah, all right. Well, I'm not a constitutional scholar, let alone a corporate lawyer or anything (laughs) of the sort. It just seems to me that that invites, again, government overreach and telling corporations what they can and cannot do in terms of their due diligence. I mean, banks have to make some sort of determination about who they can loan to at the very least, right? And can, can a government come in and say, well, you can't make a determination based on these criteria. Well, okay, but then where do we draw that line? And who gets it? Again, that opens up a whole... Again, engaging with it on the political level and the legislative level seems to me like the wrong way around of this, because as we've already stated, it is it is the international superclass, whatever they want to call themselves, of the hundreds or the tens of trillions of dollars, 130 trillion, I believe, is in the supposedly in the war chest of the. Glasgow Alliance, Financial Alliance on Net Zero, GFANS, which started last year, which is essentially going to operate along these lines, except for the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. But I'm sure they will be re- incorporating the ESG metric as part of that, that, whatever they come up with for how they're going to invest that wealth. That is where this really the rubber meets the road. And right. so state legislatures that can act against it. Hey, OK, go for it.
0: But I just don't think that's fundamentally going to solve this problem. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, you quite possibly could be right. I I think where they're with 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 the uh, where they're real really getting the red flag is like, oh wait, the the government has found a way around the uh, around the Constitution by utilizing corporations, and no matter how much money government has dumped into corporations, creating this corporatocracy that we see around us, this public-private partnership that everybody seems to be aware of now that they weren't aware of 10 years ago, even though it still existed. Uh, (laughs) They still call these companies private. And that's the problem. It's like, how much money does the government have to invest in a corporation before that corporation is no longer private?
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, that is the determination that, again, I think it speaks to our lack of ability to understand the system that has been erected around us, mm-hmm. which we have been taught to believe is a democratic, constitutional republic based on these principles and blah blah blah, whatever indoctrination you get in whatever particular patch of the earth you were born into. Right. Um, whereas in reality, it's, it's it doesn't function that way. And um, I, again, this is this this is the sort of self evident reality that people on the ground in the flyover states and whatever, understand and have understood their whole lives that yes, you're voting for Pepsi or Coke and Mm -hmm. take your pick and they're both going to screw you. It's just in what, what manner are they going to screw you? Right. Um, So I think this is a recognition of that reality that ultimately, yeah, government slash establishment, corporate, multi-global complex. It, it, it is the same thing, but you're exactly right. Part of the amazing trick that they do is just rebranding. So what we used to identify as fascism or corporatism, we now identify as public-private partnership. And it mm-hmm. sounds, this is great. This is the new thing we're all on board with. Right. I, I'm an anti-fascist. I hate the Nazis. But <laughs> hey, man, I love public-private port- partnerships and the wonderful things that they're going to provide bestow on the public. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we're thinking of it, I think, I, I want to say we're thinking of it in 18th century terms. I'm not even sure it really applied in the 18th century. But here we are in the 21st century and it ain't working that way. Right. And people who are stuck in that mindset will be still trying to think of things, for example, in the US context, in terms of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which clearly does not, it's not applicable to the situation that we find ourselves in, insofar as that isn't the system that we're actually
0: living under. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to spend the last bit of time here talking about about, about the oil industry, because like I said, there was that, it, it just it listening to conservatives and Biden and then the, the oil oil industry, it was like that Spider-Man meme where it's just three Spider-Mans pointing at each other. Like, it's like, yeah, I think y'all are all responsible, (laughs) like, you know, for this. Um, so we've seen, um, we've seen a lot of, a lot of stress on, on the oil industry here recently. Um, and it did not start with Russia, but, it was exacerbated with um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, due to the amount of oil and gas that Europe gets from Russia. And so, cutting off those supplies, Russia then uh, the U.S. sanctions Russia. Says, okay, uh, we're going to sanction your oil market. And then, the conservative point of view is, well, Biden has canceled all these uh, leases on public land, which is true. He has. Due to ESG metrics. Okay, we get that. But there is the idea that the oil companies aren't speaking out, right? The oil companies are staying quiet. Why are they so quiet? Why aren't they saying anything? And if you watch why big oil conquered the world, you learn that the whole climate disaster religion started with big oil. And I think that's very hard for people to wrap their heads around.
1: That That is the fundamental layer of this particular part of the PSYOP. And I know, I know that people have a difficult time with it. I I had a difficult time with it. I I actually, thinking back to my journey down the rabbit hole into starting the Corbett report, I think the last bit of normie land that I was hanging on to was the climate disaster. I'm like, well, yeah, I know 9-11 and I know all this crazy stuff that I wouldn't have believed even a few months ago, but surely not that. No, they can't be lying about that. And unfortunately, having to take a look at it and and come to my own conclusion, oh, okay, they are definitely misleading us about that. So (laughs) who are the they? Uh, And again, once you start to look at specifically some of the connections of the organizations that have emerged around what is touted to be the $100 trillion um, transformation of the economy into the new energy economy, at least that's the way they're They themselves are framing it. Um, You start to see, surprise, surprise, some of the biggest corporations in the world, including the oil majors, are involved in it. So in Why Big Oil, I specifically cited, for example, the United States Climate Action Partnership, which issued a call for action, which became a blueprint for legislative action, um, which became the basis for the American Clean uh, Energy and Security Act. And who was on the board of this climate action partnership? It was BP, ConocoPhillips, General Motors, all of these, all of these corporations. I, why would they be for that? Why would the CEO of BP be out there being interviewed by, I think it was Bloomberg, as the Paris Climate Accord was coming into shape, taking place? Yes, we're we're part of the Oil and cli- Gas Climate Initiative, which is ten of the big companies in the world who are working towards projects and technologies that are needed. It is because the the writing has been on the wall for. For decades now that yes we are moving into this new economy this new energy economy so you better be on the right side of that or else you're going to go to go to zero Mm. net zero might be your uh, an apt description of your bottom line at the end of this if you don't do the right things we see that also geopolitically with uh saudi arabia and uh um, i want to say ksm that's khalid sheikh Mohammed. um (laughs) uh the current crown prince of Saudi Arabia, whose name is escaping my memory off the top of my head. Oh, I can't who, think
0: of it is either.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, he came out with uh, Neom, you know, his project for this $500 million city of the future out in the desert. Um, that's going to be the technocrats wet dream of absolutely everything tracked and controlled and surveilled and digital at all times. It's probably pie in the sky. It will probably never come to fruition. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, the hundreds of Millions and ultimately billions are flooding into this project and are being funded into existence on the back, largely, of Saudi Arabia's oil money. Mm. Um, again, time and time again, this this money is being shifted away from that sector of the economy, and that's for a reason. That's because uh, how? It, here's the here's the bottom line of this. How do you shift over an economy that does, at the very least, it does it is it does function? We do have an industrial society in which things can be produced and all of this can happen uh, towards a society where that's going to be impossible in their own words, in their own documents. Read the UK Fires document from last year about not net zero, absolute zero. Mm. And they're saying, no, 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 net zero is just a con game. It's a shell game. They're going to say, oh, don't worry, we offset that with this. But that's a shell game. No, our goal has to be absolute zero, not net zero, Mm. which means literally no Emissions, no carbon emissions of any sort from any industry. So that's going to mean the end of airlines and airplane, the, the entire air travel industry, as we know it. Mm-hmm. That's going to mean the end of international freight shipping, cargo shipping, until we can uh, get nuclear powered cargo ships. That's going to mean the end of the construction industry until we can find ways of concrete or steel or these sorts of things that won't that we can produce somehow without emissions. It, they're literally saying the end of all these industries and that they're not saying that as a hey guys, this is absolute lunacy. They're saying no, this is what we should be striving towards. So this, this is, the is the vision of the future. It really is neo-feudalism. And it is being sold and packaged to the public as a good thing. That is the most insidious part of this.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm I'm just thinking, I'm look- I, I just this guy, Bernard Looney from uh the chief executive officer of BP. It's just <laughs> I think he's one of the creepiest of all of them. <laughs> I got some screenshots here. So he announced BP's new purpose to reimagine energy for people and our planet and its new ambition to become a net zero company by 2050 or sooner and help the world get to net zero. Soon after he shared BP's new strategy to transform from an international oil company to to and here's that word I was trying to think of earlier: an integrated energy company, from one that produces resources to one that delivers solutions to customers. That's that's what I'd see that, and I'm like, what? And then the CEO in a speech, if you go, uh, you can read his speeches from like last year on their website. And one of the things he said was, "Thankfully, the price has gone up." So that we can successfully transform to an inter- energy integrated company, and it's like wait, you're you're British Petroleum, you're not British <laughs> Wind, <laughs> like what yeah,
1: you know, actually Anglo-Iranian Oil. If you go back far enough, as true I, I do, <laughs> and how big oil conquered the world, but yeah, that's exactly right, and this is exactly how they're going to sell it. It's about repackaging. It's about putting a new narrative on it. And yes, we're not about drilling things out of the ground and using that to to fuel productive inter- industry anymore. Now we're about energy solutions. And And what does that actually look like? I went over this a few weeks ago in New Orleans Week. Um, the UK steel industry is uh, starting to go fallow for weeks at a time, just no production at their steel plants, mm. not because they physically can't do it, not because there isn't the ability or the demand for it no because the new constraints that the uk government is placing on the industry is making it, it they they can't exceed a certain quota of production so they have to reduce the amount of steel they're actually producing and that quota is going to be lowered in stages over the course of decades until there's no steel left right this yeah. is how it's done just a little bit at a time and you have to believe I mean, I get that this is the repackaging that will be used to sell the normies on this transition to neo feudalism, And I'm sure there are a lot of pe- true believers who really believe they're doing it for Mother Earth and all this. But you have to believe that certainly someone like a loony or people in the higher echelons of these companies know that this is malarkey. Uh, they are selling the public. I guess they really believe they're, they are in the club. And don't worry, they're going to be protected as we transition into this neo-feudal society. And maybe, maybe they will. Maybe they won't be double-crossed. I don't know. That's the internal politics at the top of the pyramid that we can but dimly see at our level. But at any rate, they are selling us into neo-slavery.
0: Yeah. Well, and after, after that paragraph, it gets into his work with diversity and inclusion and equity. And it's like, what does this have to do with him being the chief executive officer for an oil company? Like I, it, but you know, as much research as these conservatives are doing on like the great reset, like a Glenn Beck, they're not talking about the board of directors of these oil companies. And I'm like, wait, like you can't, you can't have this section of the corporate structure. You're not allowed to speak about. Yeah. They are no exactly. It, they're not just as involved. They are yeah. the they are the ones who are pushing and promoting this and have the right. power to actually stop it.
1: Yeah, what you're gesturing towards is the uh, the kind of controlled opposition framework of oh, here's the conservative viewpoint, whereby we just need to you know flip on the oil and get the oil companies you know going right. again, and that's what we need, and we'll build up America big and strong like before. And yeah, they don't. They're, n- they're not gesturing to the fact that, no, actually, the leadership of these companies are fully on board with this agenda and are making it happen. They are absolutely on board with it. So we have to address that level of it at the very least, right? Right. Yeah. There's a much deeper story
0: going on here. Right. Man. And it's every and it's every company, ConocoPhillips, Shell, BP, like ExxonMobil. It, it doesn't matter. Just go look at their board of directors and read through their – their biographies. And you're you're like, these, these aren't oil people. (laughs) they're, They're not, they, they don't care about the oil industry. They don't care about you getting energy. They don't care about you taking care of yourself or, or the resources that are needed to sustain life. That has been completely based off of oil and, and, and everything, has I mean, you point this out in your documentaries how everything has has petroleum product involved in it nowadays, whether it's plastic yeah. or you know um, pharmaceuticals. It's all in you know uh, controlled by the petroleum industry, and they're going to cut all of that out. So
1: when you look at the really big picture and the get the twenty thousand foot overview of not just the past few years but the past couple of hundred years, right. it makes Perfect sense. There is nothing about this that is difficult to understand. Okay, this is the energy source that will clearly guide us into this industrial revolution and beyond. Mm. So let's monopolize control of that energy source. And now you have essentially (laughs) control of human society more or less it's not direct control and you can't tell people what to do but if you control more or less control the energy supply of the earth that's an enormous mm. capital that can be wielded in for specific agendas so of course that's exactly for example what the rockefeller family did took that incredible wealth and then transformed it into political capital and societal control capital in various different ways and now what do you do well okay we've got all this control over these various different things let's put them all together and then then since we have the monopoly control or near monopoly control over this resource we can just take that resource out of the equation and collapse it down to this beautiful completely controlled little ball and that from that perspective it makes sense if you want to control literally control the world <laughs> i mean i know that that's, it sounds ridiculous it sounds like a cartoon but if you literally wanted to do that and you were starting in say the mid 19th century that is exactly what you would do and hey Look, that's exactly what's happened. Yeah. So I guess, again, it always comes back down to, okay, that's the big overview of a couple of hundred years of history that I didn't personally partake in in any way, shape or form, <laughs> other than being born into a system that existed before I got here. Right. What do I do about that? Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really the question. And if you're looking for a simple answer to that, I'm <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to have to direct you to someone who will provide you a simple answer and <laughs> probably not a correct one. Um But I, I, again, I cannot think of a way from within this system to to change the system in a way that's going to, no, okay, we're going to, We're going to convince those 250 people with one third of the world's investable wealth to not go down this path. And they're not going to create these structures and these international bodies that interact with banks and institutional investors that, again, I have absolutely no control over. No, no, we're going to convince them to do that. I don't I don't see how. The only thing that we have is our power, our labor, our time, our attention, our energy. That is the only thing that I have direct control over and I can direct my power and energy and attention and resources into investing in the future that I want to bring about. And there's a million different things that we can think about and talk about with regards to that. But that's the only thing that I have any sort of control over when it comes to my life. I don't have control, unfortunately, over the investable wealth of the planet, which is increasingly being uh, more and more tightly controlled. So all I know is the structure, the structure that has been created is a behemoth that is Difficult to even comprehend in how overwhelmingly vast it is. Um, the only the only thing we can do is turn away from that behemoth and do what we can for each other. Because right. that behemoth isn't going to take care of us. And no one wants to hear that. Because that isn't a happy life of, you know, hey, we can just go on and keep with all our, you know, electronic slave devices and everything. And just keep going as it is and just tweak a thing here or there.
0: I don't think that's going to be the fundamental answer to this. Right. Yeah, and and it it gets even more complicated when you realize that the same families that are controlling the energy resources of the entire world are also controlling the the central banking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So and, the Rothschilds went from banking into oil,
1: and Rockefellers went from oil into banking. Right,
0: and it's just it all,
1: it always leads back to the same right. choke points for humanity, essentially.
0: Right, and and so as they as they're shifting. Our, our dependence from fiat currency to central bank digital currencies, or from uh, from uh, oil and petroleum into wind and solar, it's it's at their will. It it doesn't depend on whether or not you think these oil. You companies don't get a vote exactly. <laughs> yeah. you, you don't have a say on whether or not they're going to be drilling for oil tomorrow. Like you, no. that's not up to you. No, no, that's exactly right.
1: The Again, literally, the only control that we have is over what we're doing with our own resources while we even have any sort of alternative to do with it. So every... I mean, we have to think of it in these terms. Every single time you're filling up that tank of gas at the the gas station, you are supporting the companies that are doing this. Every time that you're buying one of these electronic slave devices, you are supporting the companies that are doing this. Every time you eat their fast food GMO crap, you are supporting the companies that are doing this. And every time you are trading in the monetary instruments that they give you to that, that represent your wealth and your, your labor and everything that you've worked for your whole life. And you are allowed to trade in this currency to get these tracking devices and whatever else you have to understand that's all part of this system. So what can we do? We can, we can start To the extent that we can, stepping out of that bubble. And clearly, I'm not floating on a cloud here. I'm talking to you (laughs) through with these electronic devices. I've got the the latest, greatest slave tracking technology. We are all part of this system. We're born into it. We're steeped into it. But until and unless we start finding and building up communities that support and understand what they are supporting, which, again, has to be the baseline for this. Because if you don't understand it, you can easily be misdirected. It's a lot of work. There's yeah. I, I wish I had a happier thing to say, but uh, I, yeah, I can't sell you the twenty nine ninety five, you know, solve all your problems workbook or something. Um, it's unfortunately it's the creation of a parallel society and that doesn't happen overnight and it's not going to happen easily. And it's probably not going to happen ultimately without bloodshed. Yeah. I mean, there's no way that this happens peacefully and happily and happily ever after.
0: Yeah, no, I, I understand. But we're getting close to your uh, your cutoff. I know you had a hard out. Uh, I want I want you to plug everything that that you're doing right now, and uh, like I said, I'll put all this in the show show notes so people can find it. All right, well,
1: uh, people should go to CorbettReport.com, C O R B E T T Report.com. That's where all my work is located. And for the purposes of today's conversation, you can type ESG into my search bar to see some of the things that I've talked about with regards to that in the past. And you'll probably want to go to corporatereport.com slash big oil if you haven't watched my How and Why Big Oil Conquered the World documentaries. Again, everything available for free, free viewing, free reading, make use of it as a resource, post it everywhere, anywhere you want. That's what it's for. I hope it's uh, I hope it's a value to people out there.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I really appreciate your time, man, and I want to do this again. Uh, I always appreciate your work. I try to keep up as much as I can. It's not easy, but I do. We we could probably have a hundred follow up conversations just to this conversation
1: alone. So, we could. Look forward to talking to you again. All right, Bubba. All right. Take care. If you're going to play Scammer Pick and Choose, well, it's a game that was made for
0: you to lose. It doesn't really matter how many times, it's the same old worn out story, same old line. Never really making any kind of change